All right, Revelation chapter 20. You know, I want to finish, start reading and, uh, at the end of 19. So starting in verse 17 of chapter 19. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the air, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the king of the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse of his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> hey, you know... The Bible gets into some pretty wonderful details. So there's this angel standing in the sun saying, get ready, everybody, there's going to be a feast. We have the wedding feast of the lamb. It's going to be nothing like this, which we just read about. This is a feast for the birds to feed on the dead flesh of all those who rebel against God, just their flesh part, not to mention their souls, which we'll take care of here later on. Intense times, the battle of Armageddon, place where... Man gathers together under the false prophet and under the beast, thinking they can overcome the king of kings and the lord of lords. You know? Just not going to happen. Make a note to yourself. Don't try to defeat God. It's not going to work. So at the end of chapter 19, we read about the return of Christ, culminating in the battle of Armageddon and and the false prophet and the beast. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire. We're going to talk about the difference between Gehenna, or I'm sorry, not Gehenna, uh, Sheol, hell, and the lake of fire. Two different places. Wonderful to note. And chapter 20 is just a continuation of the story. It's actually, you know, uh, there's a guy who was his, his archbishop of Canterbury in 1227, Stephen Langton. He's the one who put all the uh, little chapters and verses in here. It used to be just scrolls just straight through books. And so, you know, while that's helpful for us to study, that wasn't in the original. And so sometimes stories just continue. And so uh, as, Bible, as Bible students, we need to kind of just be aware of that. It really help, helps me to, to be able to remember where to go. But at the same time, it can break apart a story in, the, in mid-sentence, and that's sometimes not, not, not very helpful. But uh, in chapter 20, it's just a continuation. <clears throat> and I saw, verse 1, An angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. The abyss means is the bottom bottomless pit. If you can read about that in chapter nine, eleven, and seventeen of Revelation, Uh, many believe that the abyss is the center of the earth because it's the bottomless pit, and many believe that uh, where can there be no bottom except for in the middle? Because every way, every other, every other way is up, right? And so uh, many believe that this is the abyss, and you can read that from other verses as well. That you know where he opened the earth, and then it came out of the abyss. So it's somewhere in the earth. We just read that in Revelation chapter fourteen, I believe. But uh, anyways, that's just conjecture as to where it is. But ver- uh, verse two says he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
And he drew him into the abyss and locked and, and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Speaking of, this is speaking of the millennium, the kingdom age, a thousand years where Satan is locked away. You know, there are those uh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ that believe the millennium reign of Christ has already begun. Actually, a majority of Christians believe that it's our, we're already in it right now. Obviously, we depart from that. Um, most denominational churches that have their roots in the Reformation, and I'll explain it a little bit, they, they believe this. They believe that we're actually in the millennium right now, or all millennial, actually, that there is no millennium. And it's all figurative. So we're really a minority in believing this, evangelical Christians mostly. Um, this obviously comes from how we interpret the scriptures. If you read the Bible for what it says, like any other book, that, I mean, that's just kind of how we take it. If, if, if you're reading a book and it starts to tell a poem, do you take that literally or do you take it as a poem? You're reading it like a poem. If it's a legal piece, you're reading something that's legal and you take it that way. If it's a narrative, you, if you read it as a narrative. If God is saying, like, for example, I wish that I could gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. Is God saying that he's a chicken? No, he's not saying that. He's, I wish I could gather you like that. And so, therefore, we don't take it literally that way, but we take it according to genre of literature. As you're reading through the Bible, as you're reading through it, we just read through and say what it says. If it's a poetry, we obviously understand that there's um, a lot of plays on words and, and things that God is drawing out there to probably reach some of you more sensitive type folks, right? Those engineers just talking legal stuff. Boom! I want you to know what it is, and here it goes, and this is number A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, right? So God has a thousand ways of how to get through to us. But there are those who uh, hold to the interpretation of Re- Revelation as an allegory. The whole thing is allegorical. Nothing is what it stands for. It all stands for something else. And I believe that is personally a, a wrong interpretation of Scripture, although many dear brothers and sisters believe that. There was an early church father named Origen, and he decided to interpret the Bible, uh, or interpret Revelation through, through allegory. And I think even most of Scripture. Everything was an allegory. That was neat, but it caught on. And then a guy named Augustine, he perpetuated it. And during that time where Rome and the church came together, uh, the, the pastors started to be paid by the state. And so therefore, uh, it wasn't very popular to be preaching against the, that God is going to come back and correct the nations when the nations are giving you a paycheck. Right? <laughs> so of course it's allegorical. And so, fast forward. Uh, well, well, basically, so the Roman Catholic Church, they, they hold to this doctrine to this day. But as you can see, you fast forward to the Reformation, to the 1500s, where Martin Luther and others, they address the main issue of salvation by grace through faith. No indulgences. You can't pay to, to, to buy salvation. It is by grace through faith. God, it's a free gift. You accept it. You're righteous based upon that, not upon your works, not upon anything else. And they really hammered that, but what they didn't, Correct in that situation was this allegorical approach, and obviously that wasn't the thrust of it. And so what happens is you have all the, the denominations that came out of that still holding to that. 
And so today you have, you know, all these different uh, denominations such as, uh, you know, I'll read off a couple. Anglican community, uh, Communion, Disciples of Christ, Lutheran, or- Orthodox, Reformed, or Calvinists, um, obviously Roman Catholics, and some conservative Baptists um, who hold to re- Reformed views. They all believe this, uh, this, this type of interpretation. So most people believe that. And again, I, I believe it's, it's really difficult on, when you go down that road. So I, we obviously disagree with this view. Just want you to know that it's out there and it's, a, and it's a, the majority of the view. Believe, take it as all allegorical. This, I believe this is wrong. <clears throat> and so when it says in verse 2 that he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended can take it for what it says. An angel took Satan, put a chain on him, threw him in a, in a holding tank, and shut the lid for a thousand years. I love what uh, Chuck Smith said about the view, the all-millennial view, that, that we are currently in uh, the millennium, that it's a, just a spiritual reign of Christ in our hearts. It's never, Christ isn't going to actually physically rule on the earth uh, right now for a thousand years. It's going to be a return later on. Um, I love what Chuck Smith said about it is that uh, he said, if the millennium reign of Christ has begun, then Satan's chain is too long. <laughs> if he's bound, man, that's just horrible. Look what's going on. There's no evidence that Satan has been bound whatsoever. He's at loose and he's working in, at uh, thwarting our lives. He's working on our church. He's working on our families. He's working on our community, our nation. He is at work. He's not bound whatsoever. And so, notice, also notice verse 2 and 3, that it didn't take Jesus to bind Satan, did it? Who bound him? Just says an angel. Didn't even say super an angel, but the angel was obviously given authority and power to do it, and so he did. This brings up the thought that most people have that in America that Satan is somehow the, the evil equal of God. This is not true. Jesus is the creator. Satan is created. Jesus said, hey, go take care of this guy. Right? Creation is subject to him. And Satan, a fallen angel, he's seized by an angel and he's bound in the abyss, the bottomless pit. Jesus has power over the enemy. Check it out. You remember the story of the demoniac? Remember that? The guy was just totally possessed with a legion of demons. I'll read it for you. But it says... Uh, and they sailed to the region of Ganes, uh, Gargesons, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. From a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but he had lived in tombs. Where he, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of that man. Many times it had seized him and thought he was chained. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains that had been driven by the demon into solitary places. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? Legion. He replied, because we are many demons. Because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. That's very interesting. 
And a large herd of pigs was there, and the demons begged Jesus to do that, and he let them go into the pigs. I want to point out two things with that story. First is that Jesus is obviously all-powerful when it comes to the demonic world that's around us. And when Satan is there, he's going to speak, and the angel's going to go grab him, throw him in a pit. That's going to be awesome. Secondly, Jesus did not choose at that time to send that legion of demons into the abyss. He did not choose at that time to do that. Why? I mean, what would you do? (laughs) Not what would Jesus do, what would Matt do, right? (laughs) Man, I'd be putting a lid on those guys as fast as you could. But it wasn't time yet. And this is difficult for us standing on this side of heaven, the timing of God. God has timing in things that don't seem just to us, but are absolutely essential for, for his plan. His time was not yet to put a stop to demonic power or Satan. I know that seems harsh to us, but it's a reality that he has a plan. Remember Jesus was in Nazareth, and he was before his own people, and they opened the scroll of Isaiah. Do you remember that? He went home, he, he just got done being tempted in the desert, he came full of the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's in front of his own people, opens up the scroll of Isaiah and starts reading. And he was reading, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery, uh, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressors free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped in mid-sentence. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone were just blown away at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. He stopped in mid-sentence. If you read from Isaiah 61, if you keep on reading, this is what it says. He did, it, it, this is what it says. And we've got to catch this to kind of get what he's saying. The Spirit of the Lord, of the Sovereign Lord, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim the freedom of the captives, and release the dark, from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped. But if you keep on reading in mid-sentences, and the day of vengeance of our God. He stopped because that wasn't his mission. His mission was to heal the brokenhearted, bring salvation. The second part, when he comes back, part two, is to bring the day of vengeance. It wasn't time yet to bind the enemy. And so as we have read about the second coming of Christ over the past few chapters, we read about that day of vengeance, the part two, the continuing of that prophecy. Jesus didn't judge the demons or he didn't bind Satan then, but now in chapters 19 and 20, we're going to see all those wrongs righted. The false prophet and the beast are thrown alive into the lake of fire. Now finally Satan's being tied up and thrown into a pit with a chain, Right? Awesome. To everything there is a season. And so here in chapter 20, the return of the king begins with the binding of Satan. And I would suppose his demons also for a thousand years. Now, notice he's not thrown into the lake of fire yet. He's still going to be used by God's plan towards the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. And so, verse 2, an angel... He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him in the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, 
he must be set free for a short time. What an awesome thing. Satan, bound. Demons, gone. Can you imagine what that's like? Jesus, reigning and ruling. No injustice. No murder. I mean, no, I mean, if there is, it's just dealt with. I mean, it's just amazing. What a great freeing society that would be. Kids can go out and play. The lion lies down with the lamb. Have the kids go play out, play with snakes, you know? Just awesome. What a great time. We're going to read more about that in a moment. But I saw thrones on which... Uh, Verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. In John 5, 28-29, Jesus describes two resurrections, and I would say two categories of resurrection. Do not marvel at this, he says, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Two resurrections, one to life, one to condemnation. Got that? Two categories. And so the first resurrection, I believe, includes all the saints from the time of Adam to the, to, through Israel to the church to the great tribulation and to the return of Christ. We even read about it in Matthew when, when uh, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He popped up and all of a sudden you have saints popping up everywhere and going to tell their testimonies in the city of Jerusalem. Part of the first resurrection until it's not just an event, I think it is a whole category that first resurrection with Jesus. And on that day, he'll call us all up. I think this includes the rapture, includes the second, uh, everybody coming up, that first whole group. First res- the first resurrection. Although we don't have time to get into all the talk about how we're going to rule, this is cool. You are going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years on the earth. You will. You believe in him? You are going to have authority to rule and reign with Christ. He says that. He promises that. Now, I don't have time to get into all the different specifics of it, but to the, the degree that you're able to rule depends upon what you do now with what you've been given. What? Remember the parable of the talents? He says it in three different ways. I think three different times he says the same kind of parable. But the one in Matthew 25 we read about, it says, again, it will be like a man, he's talking about the kingdom of God, when the kingdom comes. It will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and and, and entrusts his wealth to them. That's you. That's me. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. Pretty cool guy, huh? And so also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. 
But the man who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Not a good investment. Don't put it in a bank. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's it. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His, ra- his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. In other places, it talks about, and I will have you rule over many. And he goes on with the, with the second guy. You've been faithful with little. I'm going to give you more. And the third guy, he gets to and says, let's see here. He goes, is, he says, so I was afraid that when you, you know, you're going to come back. So I hid your, hid your gold. You know, I know I was kind of scared you didn't have a right understanding of God. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that when, uh, that, that I harvest where I have not sown and I gather where I have not scattered the seed. Well, then you should have put my money, uh, on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would receive bank back, uh, I'm sorry, receive it back with interest. And so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where you will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's not saying that we who are saved are going to be thrown into the darkness. That's saying, I believe those who are not saved have not done anything with Christ. I believe, as we're looking at this, that we will bear fruit according to what. But what have we done with it is the important thing. What have we done with what God's given us? And if we're living for today and now, then it's going to be pretty sad. And we'll read a little bit more about that in Second Peter and other places. But if we're investing in the future kingdom right now with everything that God's given us, he's given you riches, he's given you the gospel, he's given you the Bible. Do you realize that some people are in China right now are just taking a page of this, folding it up, reading it, hiding it, handing it to their friend, and they're handing little pages like just the gospel of John back and forth. We have such a wealth. We can just turn on the radio anytime and listen to whatever we want about God. It's just amazing. We can worship Him freely, you know, and we have this great opportunity to change, to be investing. What are we doing with it? There will be a day when we stand before our King. No, we will not be uh, thrown into the pit. But we'll talk about it in just a second what happens. It's sad. But also, I want to have that day when each of you are standing before the Lord going, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. And we're going, amen. That's what, I, that's what I desire. Isn't that what you want? So from this day forward, make a change and live for it. You can't change what's in behind you, but you can change right now. Amen? That's, a, that's open And so by these and other teachings, we learn that our ability to rule with Christ depends on what we do here on the earth. Blessed are our, verse 6, we're going to rip through this now, ready? Blessed are and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the first resurrection all the way up until, until the return of Christ. The second death doesn't have power over us. The second resurrection is after the thousand-year reign of of Christ. 
and is the resurrection of all those who are not his and will be judged. We'll read about that in verse 7, in in a few verses, sorry. Uh, I think of verse 11. But verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Gog and Magog is most likely a reference to uh, a demonic uh, power, and you could read that, I think, in Amos chapter 1. I think so, uh, in the Septuagint version. And also, uh, Magog is a, is, a, is a reference to the nations in the southern steps of Russia. But I think this is, used, this is a, um, an allegorical term, I think it is, uh, just saying all the people of the earth are gathering together again uh, and are going to go attack them. Wonderful. In the number, they are like the sands of the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So this is like Armageddon part two. After a thousand years of perfect rain, man still rebels. I like what David Guzik says about this. He says, if Jesus has reigned so wonderfully for a thousand years, then why will the earth rebel? They will do it, and God will allow it as a final demonstration of man's rebellion and depravity. Now, this is very important. Outward conformity to Jesus' rule will be required during his reign. Outward conformity will be required. He will rule with a rod of iron. We will rule with him with a rod of iron. An inward embrace of his lordship will still be up to the individual. Isn't that kind of what we're facing with our kids? (laughs) You know, we have that outward control. But what we really, truly desire is the heart. We want the heart. We want them to have life. And so it is with the heart of man. You can be, you know... We're in a, in a generation that blames everything on our environment. It's everybody else's fault. You know, if only I had a perfect environment, then I'd be, I wouldn't be the way I am. Well, that might be partially true. If only the government was just. If only there was world peace, then all would be hunky-dory. You know, I've talked with over, friends over the, over the years facing difficult circumstances, and their thought was that if they could only escape the environment they're in and go somewhere else, then everything would be okay. The problem is, is that you go with it. <laughs> you know, from marriage to marriage, you're still there. It's my heart. It's me. I'm not blaming anyone else. It's Matt. So let the Lord deal with, with you. I've got issues. God's going to reign perfectly with a rod of iron for a thousand years. And in the end, it will, it's just going to reveal man's heart, still hardened. Verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice the beast and false prophet were still there after a thousand years. They weren't annihilated. They're still burning. Also the devil, the false prophet, and the beast, and all those who have taken the mark of the beast, according to Revelation 14, are in there. And this is obviously talking about eternal punishment. 
there are brothers and sisters who do not believe, and they believe that how could God let someone, uh, you know, suffer forever and ever and ever and ever? I, I can't comprehend it either, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Just because we don't understand something or we don't have the emotional capacity or understanding of that, it doesn't mean it's not true. This is obviously, uh, there's different things from Jude chapter 1 to Second Peter chapter 2 and the teachings of Jesus. I believe that it says what it means and what it says. You know, they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't like that. And I don't think God does either. There are, day, there are those who would say this can't be so. But I'm not going to mess with it because as you read at the end of Revelation, it says those who add to it, I'm going to add the plagues to it, to you. And those who take away from this book, I'm going to take your name out of the book of life. So I'm not going to mess with it. That's what it says. And we just need to wrestle before the Lord. So I think it would be wise to realize that God is in the eternal business of both life and death. But he desires, his heart in the matter is that he desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And that should be our heart too, amen? That's our heart. Let's finish it up. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who, and who, him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Now, most scholars believe that this is not for the believer, but for those who have rejected Christ. The great white throne judgment. The judgment that believers are headed for is the judgment seat of Christ found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment of seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us in the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 12, it says, speaking to the church, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold and silver and costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. Kind of heavy words. That each one day we'll stand before the Lord, and the things we have done to him will be, I imagine, the eyes of Christ, those flaming eyes of fire, will see through all that we are, our motives and everything. And what was done for him will survive, and what was done for us will burn. And some of us will stand there on that day with nothing. Many people who stand in pulpits will stand there with nothing. And there will be tears. And I believe this is why Jesus has the wipe, part of the reason why Jesus will wipe away every tear. But this other judgment we're reading about right now is the great white throne judgment. The judgment is the final judgment of the world and all those who reject Christ. Perhaps this is where we'll be judged and, God, and at that point he does, judges us differently. I'm not quite certain. I, I have to learn more about it to tell you the truth. But there will be a judgment for the Christians. 
those who believe Jesus, not based upon salvation, Jesus paid that price, but based upon what we have done. And we will be rewarded accordingly. I'm pretty excited about that, aren't you? You know? Yay, Matt. Fifth place. Out of five. <clears throat> then death, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. We're almost there. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. You want to have your name in the book of life. Do you know that you're, if you, how you get your name in the book of life? You call out to God and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And instantly, your, when you believe that from your heart and you confess it with your mouth, your name is written in the book of life. Done deal. You're there for eternity. Pretty cool, huh? So all of you, wonderful. Have your name written in the book of life. But it also speaks right now. Right now, there's a place called hell. How many of you know of a place called hell? You ever heard of that? Right, we don't want to wish anybody to go there, all right? It's a, it's a place the Bible calls Hades, a holding tank for those who've rejected God's sacrifice for their sin. Jesus Christ, right? Those who've rejected Jesus and they die on this earth, they go to a place called Hades. And according to Luke 16, where it talks about the rich man and Lazarus, remember that? There was a guy named Lazarus. Not, not probably Lazarus, Jesus' friend, but Jesus is using actually specific names, so we believe it's a, it's a story, not a parable. There's a guy named Lazarus, and he goes ahead, and he was poor, and he was a beggar, and he had sores and all this stuff, and there was a rich man who ignored him and all this stuff. Anyways, they both died. Lazarus was taken to Abraham's bosom, the center of the earth. And this is called Abraham's bosom, like this compartment called Hades in the middle. Two parts. On one part was, was paradise. On the other part was hell. And there was a great chasm in between, which many believe is the abyss. And this rich man, he was burning and tormented, and he calls out to Abraham on the other side. He says, hey, send Lazarus over here. To give him, just have him dip his finger in water because I'm just burning and I'm tormented day and night. He hasn't stopped. And he goes, you know, I can't do that. You know, what you've, you've lived your life. This is what's going on. This is, you're stuck. He wasn't complaining on the other side that I, I'm unjust. I, I haven't done this. I don't deserve this. There's so much we can learn from this, this story. There was a sense of he knew what it was, he was right. But his heart, he, had, he was conscious about what was going on. He was feeling pain. He had emotions. He wanted these other people. He's all, please send, send, send someone. Resurrect someone. Bring them back to life and go send them over to my five brothers and tell them so they don't come to this horrible place I'm in. And what did Abraham say? He said, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe someone until they rise from the dead. And so it teaches us about this place. Now, when Jesus died, it says that he ascended, descended into hell, and he preached to the captives, to those who were ours. When it says preached, that doesn't necessarily mean like told them about salvation. He, just, he proclaimed, you're free took them and brought them up to heaven. So when we die right now, to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. For those who don't know him, go straight into the holding tank, this place called hell. Okay? And what he's talking about right here, then death and Hades, verse, uh, verse 14, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. So that whole place, that temporary holding place, gets thrown into a permanent place called the lake of fire. The second death. This is the second death. 
So the place we call hell is not the end for those who have rejected Christ. It's a holding tank until this great white throne judgment. Then hell and death will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So with all this in mind, how should we live is the question. What's the application? What's our part in all this? Believe in Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. Live it out. And that we can turn to him when we need Yeah. And we can proclaim that to others. We need to proclaim that to others. You know we're commanded to go and make disciples. Why? Because God doesn't want people to go there. And he's made us a part of the people who go and save them. He is a redeemer. And he says, you have the ministry of reconciliation. That's our ministry, to go and to grab people out of the flames. That's a great responsibility. That's a great thing we've had. To whatever degree God's given you. Some, you, some of us are Billy Grahams. Some of us are, you know, like us. We don't have worldwide evangelism ministry. We have Walla Walla ministry. Amen? That's awesome. Let's be faithful for what we've done. But I want to close. Let's open up to Second Peter we're just going to read through it. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. I'm just going to read it. You can follow along, okay? Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord, uh, our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since it's been from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world I'm sorry, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same world, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now, really quickly, some of us sit sit there and say, okay, well, then the millennium is not really a millennium. Listen, to the Lord, a thousand years is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, right? To us, a thousand years is a thousand years. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. And some understand slow as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Isn't that cool? The reason why God's waiting so long? He's patient. Doesn't want you doesn't want people to go to hell. Now, this is very important and we'll end here. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. As you look forward to it and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt away with heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And that's what we're going to start reading uh, next week. Mother's Day, right? Good stuff. 
So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, no kidding, which ignorant and unstable people, that's me, distort, no, I'm just kidding, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless and uh, of the lawless and fall from your secure position. And this is the one I want you to highlight and just really meditate on. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow in the knowledge. Now grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Growing in grace. Ah, be more gracious because he has been gracious to us. Growing in knowledge, knowing more about him, not so that we can have knowledge, but so that we can love deeper. Find deeper ways to love one another. Amen? Amen. And so all this fire and all this hell is something that can't be avoided as Christians. We don't, we don't avoid it. We don't say it doesn't exist. We believe it because he said it. At the same time, God's heart beats for people and he wants none to perish. Amen? That should be our heart. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Revelation chapter 20. We look forward to 21 and learning about things yet to come. Just absolutely amazing places and things we'll get to be and these bodies that we will have and it just blows us away. Lord, help us to grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus. Father, help your church, help me to repent and to live a holy life. Take away those things that would cause us to not invest in eternity. Help us to see the world through your eyes, Lord. Help us to see the world through your economy. And give us what we need, Father. Help us to take steps of faith in people's lives. As there's a need, Lord, and we don't see an answer, help us to step out and know that you'll provide it. In our own lives, but in the lives of others. Work miracles in our lives every day, Lord. Amen.